everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today is episode 93, and I got a whole variety of topics. First, could an oak tree set legal precedent? Could we have found the world's largest tree? We're going to talk a little bit of follow-up on CITES, just to clarify a few points. I want to talk about the use of a jointer in a sawmill. We're going to revisit case hardening. We're going to talk about some bugs and killing them, frankly. A little bit of poplar talk and a little bit more poplar talk. No, this is not an episode proclaiming how wonderful poplar is. So before we get into that, again, I want to say thank you to everybody who has continued to sponsor the show and become patrons of the show. You can do so at patreon.com slash lumber update. That's the only sales pitch I can say. Mostly, I just appreciate you guys, both patrons and not, continuing to send in questions. Can you tag me on Instagram, uh, even on my Renaissance Woodworker Instagram um, account, just sending you all kinds of questions. This show gets an easier and easier to put together based upon all the questions you guys have. So speaking of which, if you go to lumberupdate.com, there's a contact form you can fill out to submit questions, or you can just send me emails to lumberupdate at gmail.com, or of course, lumberupdate on Instagram. Good way to, to get me there as well. So let's dive into this. A couple people sent me this. I'll I'll credit Michael. He sent it to me first. Um, The Shawshank Oak is in the news because, well, first of all, the Shawshank Redemption, that uh, Stephen King book turned into a movie with uh, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Great, great book. There's a point where uh, Morgan Freeman's character, Red, goes and digs up uh, a little tin box from underneath an oak tree. That uh, tin box was left there by Tim Robbins' character. And the oak tree that that was filmed under, again, that's what we're calling the Shawshank Oak. This tree was, uh, it got hit by lightning, I want to say sometime in 2011. And then it fell during a windstorm in 2016. So the tree, uh, the the landowner took the tree and said, I want to have this milled up into boards. And his idea was to sell it as like commemorative material. Now, if you go out in Ohio where uh, all this was filmed, where the whole movie was filmed, there's actually like a Shawshank tourist trail. And you can go to the, the reformatory, the prison where they filmed it, and a whole bunch of places in town that you can see that show up in the movie. And the oak tree was also part of that. So this landowner already knew that there was kind of a cult following of this movie. And if he could make merchandise out of the oak tree, he could make some money on it. Well, long story short, the wood was lost. Uh, There was about 500 board feet that got either mislabeled or misplaced, and it ended up getting burned by the sawmill owner, or at least somebody in the sawmill, one of his employees, burned it. So the landowner of the Shawshank Oak is suing the the mill, the sawmill, for what he uh, coins significant financial loss. So this is interesting to me how this is going to come out. Because what we're talking about here is 500 board feet of oak. And forgive me, I don't know the exact species of oak. Um, None of the stories I've seen are actually saying what it is. So let's just go with red oak. 500 board feet of non-kiln dried, uh, non-graded, we're going to call it ungraded red oak, wouldn't go for a heck of a lot of money. You know, if we're going to say that it's it's green. Um, maybe we'll go and say that it's air dried, but it is not has not been kiln dried according to the stories that I read. You might be lucky to get a buck a board foot. 
you know, some variance will, ha- will, will come there, but a lot of that depends upon the grade, the lengths and the widths, and we don't know any of that data. So uh, again, the fact that it's all random will also actually reduce the price. So I think a dollar a board foot is probably a good price for this. So if he's suing for, quote, significant financial loss, obviously he's not quoting at a dollar a board foot. So how is he quoting that? And on what grounds is he quoting or valuing the significant financial loss? So as I said, this guy has been making commemorative items like rock hammers and commemorative plaques and plates and all kinds of things. And he does have some sales history and selling material using the Shawshank Oak. So he and his lawyer are quoting a value in the high six-figure range. So again, buck a board foot, 500 board feet, that's 500 bucks. Um, Even if it's like double that, you know, $2 a board foot, that's $1,000. And yet they're talking high six figures here. That's a big delta. This is, you know, being claimed to be a unique tree and therefore it has a greater value than the market value of an air-dried random width ungraded red oak. And, and even if it's not red oak, even if it's white oak or bog oak or something like that, uh, in fact, the more obscure the oak, probably the lower the price will be because of really no commercial market for it. So this is an instance where the unique kind of backstory of the tree, even though that backstory is fictional from Hollywood, is adding value to this oak. So if this lawsuit comes out And actually, at the time of this recording, I think there has been a ruling on this. And unfortunately, I'm not finding it as I'm madly Googling while I'm recording this. Uh, So if if there has been an update on that, feel free to write and let us know what the, the result was. But this is one of those situations where how do you how do you put a value on this? And what does that do to set a legal precedent? How does that change things? for somebody to, or or on what grounds can you establish value and how do you value something like this? I can say that this tree has a whole lot of value to me because it grew in the corner of the house where I grew up. You know, is that that far of a cry from saying this was in a fictional movie and people come and want to stand under it? I don't know if this landowner was selling access to the tree. I mean, it was on private land. It's highly possible he was selling tickets. And then maybe he's saying, okay, well, now that the tree is gone, I don't have that anymore. But that's not the sawmill owner's fault that he can't sell tickets to to retrieve the tree anymore. Um, It's purely on the perceived value or the value of the merchandise that he could sell. And to me, that's kind of a specious argument. And it's not that far of a stretch to say, okay, I'm selling boxes. I'm selling pins made from a tree that grew in front of the town courthouse. You know, is that just as significant? Who who am I to say it's any less significant than a tree that showed up in a Hollywood movie? So it's really kind of interesting. This is where like reclaimed lumber kind of blurs the line and you can say, okay, we can charge whatever we want because this reclaimed lumber has a backstory to it. And that's always been up to the person selling it and frankly, up to the person buying it. You can charge whatever you want for tank wood as long as somebody will buy it. But to go to a court of law and say, now you owe me X dollars, you know, X dollars over market price and the court is going to force you to pay me that is a very different situation. Certainly, I'm not a lawyer. Lawyers listening to this, feel free to write in and chime in how that might create a legal precedent. But I think it's, uh, it's pretty interesting that there could be this precedent set on just the value of a particular oak tree. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm very conscious of the fact that I am biased towards the sawmill owner in this story. We've had a lot of instances where a customer's had a specific request and we have actually brought in material specific for that request. Now, the customer ends up buying that material outright and we're keeping it on our yard. We're maybe doing some milling or transformation or while things are kind of working, while designs are being finalized, we're hanging on to and essentially storing that lumber. That lumber does belong to that customer. They have bought it. In this particular instance, the customer didn't buy this. The customer already owned it, and he's essentially giving it to the mill owner to hang on to until he needs it. So in many respects, he's renting space on the sawmill owner's yard for that lumber. So I, I, I kind of feel like the sawmill owner should be charging this guy for the material, but I'm getting a little off topic there. I do think that I, I could stand some fresh eyes on this. So I'm actually exhorting some of you who are listening to this. If you come down on the other side of this and you think the sawmill owner is in the wrong and that there should be a significant value placed on this and this guy should be charged for for losses, I, I would love to hear that um, point of view. To, to quote the meme, change my mind. Because I just feel like this is awful specious to start putting you know extraordinary value on a material that you have not sold and cannot really prove that you can sell it for any substantial value. You know, your previous sales numbers for items made from a raw material really should not play into the value of the raw material. Maybe I'm wrong on that. And I would love to hear from some folks on that. Anyway, that, that's enough of this story. I just, this one struck me as really interesting and kind of in a totally different vein than anything we've talked about before. And like I said, you know, if this comes down on the side of the, the, the landowner and they get like significantly more money in damages for this, that could set a really interesting precedent. So moving on, um, Tommaso, you guys remember Tommaso? He was on one of our episodes. He sent me a story about possibly the largest tree in New York and maybe the biggest in the nation that was just discovered. And it's worth going and checking this out. I'll post a link to it just to see the picture of this guy standing next to this enormous tree. So apparently that's what this guy does. You know, there are storm hunters that like chase after tornadoes and things. This guy is a big tree hunter. He's an arborist from upstate New York. His name is Fred. And he was somewhere um, outside uh, the north end of Albany, New York, and he came across an eastern cottonwood that is just enormous. And doing some measuring, and again, because this is his hobby, he knows the stats on what the biggest trees are and things like that. And he says over his 20-year career in hunting down these big trees um, and being an arborist for champion trees, this appears to be the largest tree certainly in the eastern United States, if not the entire nation. So there we go, folks. Now you can go and maybe visit, hike off into the woods and see the largest tree in the nation. And hey, depending on our last story, if that ever gets felled due to lightning strikes, well, what will that be worth? And will it be worth more than a tree that was in a movie with Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins just because it was the largest tree? I don't know. I don't know. So let's move on. I got a, an email from Robert. And he said, it was an interesting discussion you had on the Convention of Parties 19, COP19. That was the CITES uh, explanation episode. As a maker, it's now my responsibility to inform a customer of the possible need to obtain a permit for export? That's a question. It's kind of weirded, worded weird there, but 
That was a question. Paduke is a species used a lot on decorative cutting boards. As active duty military, quite a few of my customers are the same and sometimes move out of the country. So here's the thing. I've talked about um, permits in the past. Uh, we had somebody write in about using reclaimed ebony um, from piano keys to make something. So first and foremost, you have to look at the individual species. And you have to look at the CITES documents around it. Is an export is an export permit required or just an import permit required? It's not automatic that both import and export permits. Usually it's just the import permit. Moreover, it only applies to trade. So if you'd sold something, so uh, for some reason, Fort Bragg pops to mind. He's saying active duty military. He doesn't say what branch of the service or where, but I'm just going with Fort Bragg. If you're in Fort Bragg and you sell a cutting board to a fellow serviceman in Fort Bragg, and then that serviceman gets transferred to, you know, Dusseldorf, Germany, you know, or, or um, Ramstein Air Force Base. I just went from Fort Bragg to Ramstein. All your Air Force and Army guys can write in and yell at me. Hey, I spent time in military bases. My dad was in the Air Force and I spent time in Army bases. It happens. I spent time in Royal Air Force bases. It happens. Anyway, so this guy moves in Fort Bragg and now he's over in Germany. Well, you didn't sell. The maker did not sell that Paduke cutting board to someone in Germany. He sold it to somebody in the U.S. And that person just then moved later. If you move your possessions, you don't need CITES permits for that. It's only if you sell something across, um, really across national borders, not even across state borders. And then at that point, you're, you are exporting uh, a product, you're sold something to somewhere else and you have to export that. If there's no money changing hands, there's no trade here. So it's not, it's not an issue where CITES even has to apply. But more importantly, even if you were selling it, you need to look at, first of all, is export permit required or import or both? And to what items does it apply? Does manufactured decorative goods apply? There is a specific line item that says decorative goods apply. And in that instance, you have to look at the percentage of it. And it will often cite a percentage. And I talked about this with Ebony. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but a certain percentage of that overall material must be comprised of that species, in this case, ebony. So if you're building a cutting board and there is Paduke in it, you know, how much Paduke is in it? If it's less than making up a number 40%, then it does not apply. And therefore you don't need any permit whatsoever. So as the maker, if you are selling it across national borders, it is your responsibility to understand what the regulation around that species is and whether or not you need any of that stuff that I just spoke about. So it's a little bit your responsibility, but once you've done the research and determined that you are you know, in compliance, it's no longer your responsibility to inform a customer or deal with port permits or anything like that. Just do your due diligence to make sure that your butt is covered. Moving on. Uh, it's an email from Matt. He says, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. He, he is a uh, um, uh, sawmill owner, uh, also a, a maker, manufacturer, does a lot of linear millwork and things like that. And um, he says, uh, I know you're not a power tool guy, but you do work at a big lumber company. So my question is, with having a sawmill, I have a lot of wider roughs on stock. I have an eight inch joiner and a 20 inch planer. My joiner just isn't wide enough. So I'm looking at adding a bigger joiner, thinking 16 to 17 um, inch joiner, which I would uh, need all kinds of different power um, needs to actually run it. The price tag is also like bringing him into the realm of like a forehead molder. So he's wondering, 
do I need this? Like, is a joiner that expensive of a joiner really important? Um, how do bigger lumber companies S4S their lumber? And is S4S from the lumberyard good enough for furniture making? Do big companies even have jointers? So here's an interesting thing. I know a lot of lumber yards who do not own a jointer. I do know a few that have jointers, but it's gathering dust over in the corner. It's not even plugged in. Rarely is a lumber yard going to be jointing the material because there's a lot of stuff that happens downstream of the milling they do on that board. And it depends upon what the eventual use of that board is. Most of the large scale mill work that a lumber yard is doing is in linear mill work. Think moldings and flooring, in which case a perfectly flat surface is not important. Now maybe parallel faces is important and that's where the S2S comes into play. And that's where possibly a, a molder, two head, four head, six head molder can go ahead and create perfectly parallel um, faces to one another and flat faces, but any bow that happens over the length of that board won't be jointed out. And frankly, you know, there's enough flex that it doesn't really matter. In the case of flooring, there's usually enough flex in those boards because they're thin enough that it doesn't need to be perfectly flat. Or if it's uh, moldings, they're going to be fastened to a substrate like, you know, sheetrock wall or, or some kind of wall. And more than likely that wall isn't even straight. So jointing that board would be completely ridiculous. A, it could possibly move out of flat when you actually then run it through the molder. Say you're cutting a crown or something and you've got some deep cuts in that, it will probably move out of flat from where it was on the jointer. Then it could move while it's packaged, while it's being transported to the customer or while it's waiting for the customer to pick it up. So that level of precision really is kind of ludicrous at the lumberyard level. Now, is it flat enough for furniture work? I don't know. It depends on what type of furniture you're making. But here's the other thing. Um, you know, there's, there's furniture and then there's fine furniture. And we're not going to get into that discussion about what makes it fine woodworking and not, but certainly there are people that can build furniture using perfectly like wonky boards. And then there's types of furniture that requires a lot of precision. Moreover, there are types of woodworkers that demand a high level of precision. Is their work any better or any, any, you know, lesser than somebody else? That's not up to us to judge, but those that require a huge amount of precision, if your style of woodworks is the kind that uses feeler gauges and sets everything up, are you going to trust a lumber yard to joint your material anyway? Hell no, you're going to be jointing it yourself. So I think as the sawmill owner, as the person producing parts for a customer, maybe you need a jointer, but that should be determined by your customer base. Large part, the customers that demand a perfectly flat board probably already have a jointer and will be rejointing any board that you sell to them anyway, which is why most lumber yards are not going to have a jointer. That's a level of precision that just does not apply that far upstream from the finished product. And the finished product, any finished product that a sawmill lumber yard is generally producing is one that does not require a high level of flatness, like flooring, like moldings, millwork, even paneling that generally is fastened to some kind of substrate. So Matt, as far as what you're looking for, as far as what you're looking to do to produce to your customers, I think you'd be better off with a multi-head molder to create S4S, S2S even boards. Um, the additional molder heads would allow you to create profiles like TNG flooring or something like that, rather than spending money, um, equally enough money on a giant battleship size jointer that is going to produce flat faces that will only stay as flat until the next storm comes through and raises the humidity. Moving on, here's a question from Jack on case hardening. 
Um, he says, one thing that I hear over and over is be wary of super cheap lumber from local smaller scale sawyers, because if they actually don't know what they're doing running a kiln, the lumber might be case hardened and ergo junk for woodworking purposes. Uh, but you've also described the conditioning step in proper kiln operations in order to reverse case harden. So why is the kiln dried lumber preconditioning able to be reverse case hardened, but not the junk case hardened lumber baked to hell in a kiln by a novice sawyer? If we did a tuning fork test before and after conditioning, what would we see compared to junky case hardened wood? So Jack, here's the issue. And just to review, we talked about case hardening on episode... Um, and I've talked about case hardening in several episodes. So the first thing we have to look at is... This idea that buying lumber from like a local, you know, Sawyer or some guy out of the trunk of his car is necessarily going to be junk and it's all case hardened. Case hardening tends to be a, a term that a lot of people throw at bad wood or people that maybe don't exactly realize that wood moves and they blame it on the lumber. So a lot of times when you're having movement issues, it may not be junk lumber. You might be blaming the Sawyer for something that maybe you did yourself, or maybe somebody between the Sawyer and when you got the board did something that screwed it up. Wood's gonna move, and if you resaw a board in half, it's gonna move. If you take a really wide board and cut it on the table saw, it's probably gonna move. There's a lot of things that happen that is not actually case hardening. But here's the next point. Case hardening is not a black and white thing. There are shades of gray. There are degrees of case hardening. And therein lies the difference with the conditioning process or the reversing of the case hardening that is par for the course, typical process in any kiln dry um, recipe or cycle is when, let's just, let's just back up, let's review the whole thing. As we're drying lumber, we're raising the temperature and that's pulling the moisture out of the board and causing things to dry. Well, certainly the, the gooey inside of the Twinkie is going to stay more moist than the outside. And as the outside starts to get drier and drier, it starts to shrink. And the inside is still moist and gooey, so it's not shrinking. So the outer shell, if you will, is restricted from shrink shrinking too far from the inside that's kind of holding its shape. So what can happen is... Um, best case scenario, you'll see a little bit of checks and cracks as that outer shell starts to shrink, but it can't go anywhere. So it separates. Worst case is you'll actually get honeycombing or like a separation between that moist center and the outer shell. And you can see some cell collapse between those layers. Um, that actual honeycombing causes that outer shell to almost break loose from the inner part. That's like extreme case hardening you're going to see a certain amount of case hardening during a normal kiln process. As we drop that moisture level down, as the temperature rises, you start to see case hardening where the center is, is, is more moist than the outer section. As you do it slower, you know, as you raise the temperature slower, as the kiln cycle is expanded and you are injecting a bit more moisture in, so, you know, you're, you're controlling that drop in moisture a little bit more, you're going to, uh, the, the, the case hardening starts to happen and is it that outer shell starts to get to the point where it wants to crack and it's right on the edge of cracking, but you're doing it slow enough that the center section is also dropping in moisture content. So as that outer shell is just on the verge of cracking, it kind of stays there just on the verge of cracking because that inner moist area is also starting to shrink very slowly and it gets 
right there, but it doesn't quite check and it certainly doesn't separate. Now, if you raise the temperature too fast and you don't control the, mo the moisture, and again, I'm speaking in terms of dehumidification kilns mostly here, but if you're not controlling that injection of moisture um, and the moisture is dropping too fast, then that board gets right on the edge of checking and it actually does check because that center section is not drying at an even rate. If you keep going, you'll get that cell collapse, you'll get that honeycombing that happens. So the trick is keeping that board kind of right at the point where it wants to check, but it's not, or maybe slightly below that. So you're not introducing any more tension as necessary until you get the temperature, the, the moisture percentage down to around 6% or lower. 8% is the kiln dried standard in North America. So we dry it to 6% and then we re-inject moisture and raise everything back up to 8%. And that raising, that conditioning, that reversing of the case hardening process, it takes that outer shell that's just on the edge of checking or maybe just the happy side of checking and it reconditions it. it throws a little bit more moisture back into it and releases the tension, the tension differential between the moist center and the outer shell. And that's what reverses that case hardening. So if you've got a board, we'll, we'll use um, Jack's terminology here. We've got a junk case hardened board. Technically, you could reintroduce moisture into it and you might reverse some of the case hardening. There's going to be some differential between how long ago was it kiln dried and to what degree was it case hardened? How quickly was it dried? Is there any checking already in evidence? Has there been any separation? Obviously, once the fibers have broken, you can't reattach them, you know, not without injecting some glue in there. Once that tension has already been built up, and if the temperatures drop fast enough, it will actually set those cell walls. That's one of the things we want with kiln drying is you dry it to a certain level, the cell walls do get harder, they're less resistant to absorb moisture and they shed moisture faster. Everything becomes a little bit stiffer and a little bit harder, which means it will be more stable. Kiln dried lumber is inherently more stable because it is a little bit more rigid. Now it's a bit more brittle than air dried lumber for that exact reason. So. When we try to reverse the case hardening, if enough time has gone by, it'll be really difficult to reintroduce any moisture. The other thing you have to ask is how? How are you gonna do this? Unless you own a kiln, unless you can really dramatically have great control over the environment that the board goes in and the injection of moisture controlling that, that wet bulb and dry bulb temperature, it's really difficult to do this. So to the average Joe who's buying the quote junk lumber from a guy off in the woods, if it's case hardened, yes, maybe you could reverse the case hardening, but how do you plan to do that? Are you going to go buy a kiln? You know, are you going to go build a kiln? Hey, more power to you than, then you're not buying the junk stuff in the first place. Buy green lumber and dry it yourself. So it's a bit of a, of a moot point, but trying to discuss this, it may be possible if it wasn't case hardened so badly, but reconditioning it, or just conditioning it, not reconditioning it. Reversing the case hardening may be possible, but it may not be possible for you based upon your resources. So again, I'm really hesitant to, to blame a lot of stuff on case hardening. It tends to be like the knee-jerk reaction or you know, everybody blames things on case hardening and it's not always case hardening. Sometimes it's just not dried long enough. 
maybe it's dried too fast and you get a little bit of case hardening and then it's like cut off and it's just not in there long enough or it wasn't seasoned properly or air dried properly before it went into the kiln and they tried to pull too much moisture out. There's a lot of things that can go on here. There's also just a lot of internal tension in boards that's going to be there whether it's dried properly or not. The fact of the matter is there's a lot more information about kiln drying. The tech itself has become a lot more refined and a lot more precise. So anybody who's running a commercial kiln is going to have a lot more control over it. Someone who's running a solar kiln is going to have not so much more control, but the temperatures are lower and the moisture level tends to be higher and there's less swing. There's also kind of reversing of the case hardening that happens every time the sun goes down. So that that uh, daily cycle of heating and cooling that happens doesn't, it's, first of all, it's not as extreme as a typical dehumidification kiln, um, but it's also... Um, just when things start to get to the point where the tension is built up, then the sun sets and things cool back down and that conditioning happens overnight. Then it dries a little bit more the next day and then it gains a little bit of moisture again overnight. So solar kilns can actually be a really good solution to this, which solar kilns are a lot of these kind of small local sawyers are using, in which case that kind of refutes the idea that these local guys are producing more junk material. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore, but by all means, if you have a story of junk lumber that you've brought, let me know. I'd love to hear your story uh, and we'd love to know who it is so we don't buy from them as well. <laughs> so while we're on the topic of kiln dry, Kyle wrote in and said, uh, I'm interesting in uh, purchasing a bandsaw mill and start air drying my own lumber. It's all Matt's fault. If you don't listen to Wood Talk, you won't get that joke. But if you do listen to Wood Talk, there you go. Inside baseball joke there. Um, in a previous episode, you mentioned the risk or the chance of bugs coming out of the wood years after the furniture has been built. Is kiln drying the only way to prevent pests from doing this? So I've, I've answered this before, kind of, but I wanted to take the next step because I do quite get questions about bugs all the time. The only way to be certain is by kiln drying it and holding it at, at that high temperature for 48 hours. That will kill the bugs that are in the wood. You can do chemical treatments, that's not 100% effective, and I don't. I question whether it's actually worth the damage you can do to the wood and what kind of changes that can happen to the wood. Introduction of chemicals can react with the extractives in the wood already and cause all kinds of interesting and unpredictable things to happen. So chemical treatment isn't the best way to do it. Also, you don't know what can happen as you're sawing that board later and creating dust with those possible chemicals in it. To me, it's not worth the risk. The only way to be sure is by kiln drying and holding it at temperature for 48 hours. That's how you get a, a, um, a phytosanitary uh, bug certificate saying things have been killed here. But here's the issue, and this is why I wanted to bring this up again. Just because it's been kiln dried does not mean that bugs could not infest it later. Now the chances are less. Let's be let's be real here. When a board has been kiln dried and been kiln dried effectively or appropriately per species, the saps have been set, the resins have been hardened and things like that. Generally, the board is not as tasty to a bug. The board is also harder and not as easy to eat for a bug. Most people will tell you that these bugs are not interested in the heartwood. They're only going after the sapwood. While this is true, a bug will still eat heartwood if there's nothing else around. Or let's say it's eating the sapwood and it runs into heartwood. Is it going to stop right away and run for the hills? Or is the bug going to die because it ate heartwood? No, it's not eating the heartwood because the heartwood is not as tasty. There's not as much sugars and things like that. That's what the bug is really going after. But if the bug is in a situation where there's nothing else to eat, it's gonna eat what's there. 
So if there is, like you have kiln dried your lumber, you can be certain that any bugs that are in it are now dead and you're good to make furniture out of it. But that doesn't mean that somehow that piece of furniture could not become infested later. This is what termites do, folks. So I, I only bring this up, and this is not exactly what Kyle is asking, but the way he worded it made me think about this. Just because it's kiln dried does not mean that, say you brought another board in that was air dried. Maybe that other board that is now sitting on your lumber rack has bugs in it. Does that mean that that board is not going to infect the boards that have been killed and dried properly? Absolutely not. In fact, there's a strong chance of that. And then I say the bug will eat heartwood because it doesn't know, you know, that's what's there. And it's not like there's this little bug telegraph that, that says, you know, there's bug social media that says, hey guys, bad, nasty tasting heartwood over here. And they, they see on their Instagram that, oh, there's a tasty board over here. No, that at least as far as I know, that doesn't go on. I don't know. Maybe somebody will make a movie about that. And then that would be more valuable because it was in Hollywood. Um, you know, they're, those bugs don't know, don't know that there's tasty wood over there. What they see around them immediately is non-tasty wood, but screw it. You know, I got to live. I got to provide for my family. So I'm going to go dig this hole into this nasty, you know, kiln dried wood anyway. So be very conscious of the fact that you may have a lot of kiln dried lumber and you think, great, no bugs in that. But if you bring something in that is not kiln dried, that might have bugs in it, they will, in most instances, transfer over and infect the kiln dried stuff. Be very, very cautious. That was my best Elmer Fudd. I know that was terrible. Um, Howard has a question about poplar for framing. He says, I was listening to the poplar episode and I'm wondering if poplar is so strong and such a fast growing and prevalent tree, would it be good for early American frontiers people to frame barns and houses with it? I've never heard of reclaimed old growth poplar um, from a barn. I don't know much about timber framing, but it seems like the wood of choice is pine, Douglas fir, and oak. Is there some structural reason or some growth limitation of poplar to not use for a timber frame? If it's good for boats and it's stronger than pine, it must be good for a house. No? Brought this up, Howard, and thank you for this question, because it can, this goes back to a lot of what I preach on this show about understanding the technical properties of the wood for the specific application. And if you want to go back and listen to that poplar episode, it is particularly interesting because a lot of people don't think of poplar for marine construction. It is not uh, inherently a water-resistant species. Again, go listen to that episode to kind of understand that. So there's a couple things going on here in Howard's question. First and foremost, it depends on what early American frontiers people you're talking about. You know, if you're talking about the Ingalls family out in like Minnesota and things like that, um, not as much poplar out there than there is in like the Appalachian Mountain region or the Ohio River Valley. You know, heading even further west, not a whole lot of poplar there. So were those barns framed with poplar? No, they were framed with what happened to be nearby. The other question is, so, you know, early American frontier uh, cabins and things built within the Ohio River Valley may very well have been built with poplar, but unfortunately the population spread through that area has pretty much demolished any of those frontier homes. And there's nothing left to even say they were made out of poplar. But here's the other thing. Timber framing does use a lot of oak, does use a lot of Douglas fir, but it doesn't actually use a lot of pine. Well, it depends on what type of pine you're talking about. You have to remember pine is a very generic term. Is it lodgepole pine? Well, yes, there may be some of that for timber framing, but Eastern white pine, hell no. That's not a very good um, structural timber for making timber framing. Douglas fir, absolutely, but Douglas fir is not actually a pine. 
Um, nor is it a fur for that matter, but that's a whole other issue. So, um, could poplar, when you say that, you know, it, it, it seems like pine and Douglas fir and oak are, are common, that might be a bit of a specious argument and comparing the strength of say pine to poplar can also be a species argument because how do you define strength? Strength is defined by the specific application that's going under. And in timber framing, you're going to need, depending upon the piece, you know, if it's a sill plate, it doesn't have to be that strong because it's probably sitting on some kind of substrate or it's going to be supported appropriately by posts. Posts, the strength that they're seeing is along the long grain or the crushing force, which is the highest dimensional strength of a board. But a, um, oh shoot, I just forgot the name of the thing that goes on the top of the wall. Header? Well, let's just talk about like the, the, um, the, Man, I'm forgetting all of my timber framing. Sorry, guys, I'm not a timber framer. But the piece that goes along the rooftop, you know, that has to span a very long distance. And those pieces that go along the top of the wall, timber framers, please write in and yell at me. I, it's killing me that I'm forgetting all these terms here. Um, all of these longer pieces, well, they have to be strong over a longer distance. They have to have this structure to, to or in other words, the stiffness or modulus of elasticity that has to be really high, which is why Douglas fir is a great timber framing wood, which is why oaks are a good timber framing wood because their MOE is quite high. Pine has a very low MOE compared to Douglas fir. Poplar has a low MOE as compared to Douglas fir and to oak and therefore would be terrible as, you know, joists, uh, or, or again, whatever that top piece, the ridge piece, is it the ridge beam, the ridge beam? Maybe that's it at the top of a house. Um, but could poplar be good for studs? Yeah, I think so. And you will actually find poplar being used in studs in the walls. It all depends upon what part and what the forces are upon that particular part as to whether or not that species will be good. Now, we know that things like Douglas fir and oak are fantastic for timber framing for pretty much any piece within the structure. So that's why they all get built out of that. In the early days when we maybe didn't have long rail lines and supply chains that could bring any species from all over the world, you, you used what you had. So you were able to fell a couple of poplar trees. You were able to fell like that one dug fir that was going to make those long pieces that you needed, or maybe that one oak that could be used for those long pieces you needed. And you filled in the rest of the sticks in the frame with what you had around, whether it was cottonwood or poplar or whatever. Look at the restoration of Notre Dame as a good example. They're using white oak for that, but they specifically picked out, I think it was 16, 16 white oaks to be the 16 buttresses in that, um, that one section, <laughs> that one tower section of Notre Dame, because they needed some ridiculous like 29 foot length or something like that. They specifically picked trees for that purpose. And they sawed out those posts from that tree but whatever was left over from the tree could just be kind of filled in and various other joints and, and you know, whatever they needed for the rest of the structure. It's all about choosing the application and choosing the structural or technical properties of that species to match that particular force or load, um, you know, vector in, in that structure itself. So interesting question, Poplar, or uh, Poplar, sorry. Interesting question, Howard. Hope I didn't go too far off the rails from what you asked, but anytime people ask technical questions like that, to me, it's an opportunity to throw it back at you and say, make sure you think about how it's being used. Anytime you're making a generalization about strength, 
you're probably going to go wrong because there's no such thing as a generalization about strength. All wood is strong in its own way, depending on how it's applied. So keeping with the poplar theme, Matthew wrote in and said, while looking for wood the other day, I came across, quote, roasted poplar. I've also seen roasted oak. Do you have any idea what this is and how it's made? Do any of the important properties of the wood change? So Matthew, I'd urge you to go and listen to the modified wood episode that I did, whatever episode that was, uh, episode something, something from a while back. Um, I talked about all the different types of modified woods, physically modified wood, chemically modified wood, and thermally modified wood. And it's important to... um, understand the difference is certainly, by the way, it's episode 53, Modified Woods. Roasted poplar, roasted or baked maple, um, baked oak, thermally modified oak, torrified oak, torrified maple, pick torrified, baked, roasted, thermally modified, anything. That is, well, as the name denotes, thermally modified wood. It has, doesn't have resins injected into it or physical modification. It doesn't have like uh, alcohol for feral alcohol, which is biological modification. Um, it doesn't have, um, uh, um, well, I said resin already. That's physical modification. Uh, it doesn't have like ammonia used in it, which would be chemical modification. So biological, chemical, physical modification. Then there is thermal modification. As the name denotes, it is modified with heat, heat and, and steam essentially, which is really what kiln dried lumber is. So roasted, torrified, baked, or thermally modified is kiln drying, but kiln drying on steroids. You generally are raising your kiln up above 300 degrees centigrade, which is damn high. (laughs) It's, you know, a a lot of kiln recipes for at least some North American woods will top out around 190 C. Some of them go up as high as 220 C, depending on the species for setting the sap and such. 300, 330 degrees C is where some of these kilns, thermal modification kilns will go. Now, the important thing there is if you raise a kiln up to that kind of temperature and do nothing else, you will create a bomb. You will create combustion at that point. Um, What is it? Uh, Oh, come on. Bradbury's book, Fahrenheit 271. Things, the temperature in which things burn, 279. Oh my God, it's terrible. When I record Lumber Update, like all of my brain just shuts down apparently and I can't remember stuff. You guys know the Brad, Fahrenheit 451, whatever. Yeah, and that was Fahrenheit anyway. Never mind. So what you have to do to torrify or thermally modify or roast something is remove all or some of the oxygen. You get it into a low oxygen environment and the wood won't combust at those higher temperatures. So what happens here is we've kiln dried the wood down to like 2%. Then we remove some of the oxygen and we raise the temperature up even higher to the point where now the, the, the moisture drops to 0% and it's held at that high temperature. What happens here is some physical modification or structural modification to the point where the resins, the cellulose, the hemocellulose, even the lignin to some extent will bake and harden and in some ways kind of crystallize and kind of interlock in like a crystalline lattice. This removes all the oxygen or all of the, the water, all the moisture, but also at that high temperature, it breaks down the hydroxide compounds that are inbound in the cells. And hydroxide, if you don't know, is like sticky. 
it wants to bind to hydrogen any chance it can get. Well, OH plus H equals H2O, which is water. So those hungry, hungry, thirsty hydroxide ions that are floating, not floating, that are bound in the cell walls, you remove all the moisture, you remove all the water, you're down to 0%, but there's still hydroxide compounds sitting in the cell walls. So the minute you reintroduce air and, and hydrogen into, the, into um, the mix, those hydroxide ions will grab that hydrogen up and they'll form water that will essentially rehydrate the cell walls. So that high temperature breaks down and bakes out even the hydroxide ions, leaving you with truly dry lumber. That when you then go through the reverse case hardening process that we talked about before, the conditioning process, you're re-injecting moisture, you're raising it back up to equilibrium moisture content, or at least where you wanna be, maybe it's 6%. But there's no water going into the cell walls at that point. You've baked and hardened those cell walls that they can't reabsorb moisture. So the moisture percentage, if it goes from zero up to 6%, that delta, that change there is free water that's just going into the dead space in, in, in the pores. That is just coming into equilibrium with the environment. And if I took that thermally modified wood and I took it to like my shop, whose EMC equilibrium moisture content is about 11 to 12%, depending on the time of year, that thermally modified wood will go up to 11%. But here's the thing, that water is not going into the cell walls. That's not causing the cell walls to expand, to swell up, which is what causes the wood to move in the first place. And as we know, wood is anisotropic. It moves differently in different directions. It moves more tangentially than it does radially. And that anisotropic nature is what causes warping. Well, if you eliminate the ability for the cell walls to absorb moisture at all, you get a perfectly stable board that won't move. Even though the moisture content is climbing and is coming into equilibrium, it's free water. And what we know about free water, if you've listened to episodes about gravity drying, we know that free water can be shed just as quickly. So, you know, a, a storm blows through or say, you know, you come into a super, super hot and wet, humid summer, that thermally modified wood will raise up and it'll, you know, hang out at 14%. But as soon as the sun hits it, it'll bake that out and it'll shed that moisture just as fast. All the while, no swelling is happening in the cell walls and you end up with a stable board. So long story short, and I know that was a hyper, hyper technical conversation, but you guys have to realize I just spent a week in Vegas representing a thermally modified timber company um, at the International Builders Show. So I've had this conversation to thousands of people in Vegas for the last week, which is why it, I didn't have a show a couple of weeks ago because I was in Vegas talking about thermally modified woods. So this is what makes thermally modified wood particularly interesting because there are no chemicals. There is no alcohol. There is no injection of resin. It is still wood. It is still wood that was kiln dried. We know how kiln dried wood works. There's no nothing in, there's no chemicals in the dust that will cause the change in smell or anything like that. And there's no physical modification. There's no additional hardening that's happened here. So roasted poplar still has the same-ish Janka hardness as unroasted, normally kiln-dried poplar, you'll find that the Janka hardness is going to be pretty much the same. Um, the one difference you will see with thermally modified material is it's slightly harder, so slightly more brittle. Depending upon the species, you might see around an 18 to 22% reduction in the stiffness because, or yeah, the stiffness, the modulus of elasticity, because it is a little bit more brittle. 
So many thermally modified woods shouldn't be used over longer spans. Thermally modified wood primary applications these days are things like siding and decking, which the spans are set at 16 inches or shorter depending upon commercial or residential application. And on siding, they're generally 16 inches and they're not load bearing. You know, you're not standing on that siding. So that reduction in MOE is not really an issue. Would I want to frame a building out of it? Maybe not. Um, you might have to compensate for that reduced MOE by doubling it up, using additional fasteners, things like that to stiffen it up. But generally, thermally modified wood's not used in that particular application. So to answer the last part, the changes of thermally modified wood is very little. Not really anything that you would notice in building something. That slight reduction in stiffness is not really noticeable. And the hardness and things like that are still the same. It is still wood. It's the same poplar oak maple that you know, it's just not going to move now, which is kind of the brave new frontier for wood. Here's the rub. Thermal modification has, like I talked about with case hardening, a spectrum. And you can thermally modify something poorly and you can thermally modify something well. And there are some standards in place. The Thermowood Association is one entity that um, has been doing this for a while, for decades, and a Thermowood Association member has a fully licensed and vetted and inspected process, and there's a lot of quality control in place. But there are also people out there doing thermal modification that are not Thermowood Association members. There's no oversight there. And there is some trial and error, and some people have got it right, and some people haven't got it right, and it's sometimes hard to tell. So if you're buying roasted anything, you do kind of want to know how long they've been doing it, what kind of results they have. You know, what kind of kilns are they using? Is this just, you know, Buford in the back country? Sorry for anybody named Buford. That's a terrible, terrible dispersion on guys named Buford. Um, Cletus, uh, <laughs> you get the idea. There's some guy out in the backwoods saying he's thermally modifying stuff and he's raising it up to a high temperature. Does he know what he's doing? You know, what kind of schedule is he following? Um, what are the results? What kind of consistency is he getting? If you're buying from a reputable source, they're probably going to have a manufacturer. This material was produced by Tan Timber or Thermary or somebody like that. Um, and they have a long standing process that's been vetted, has quality control and all that fun stuff. There's a lot of checks and balances going to play to make sure that that's been done, uh, done right and done consistently from one load to the next. At the retail level, that's probably what you're gonna be buying from because thermal modification is a different enough process to kiln drying that generally you, you, can't, you can't use a normal dehumidification kiln to do this. You have to have a thermal modification kiln um, because you have to remove some of the oxygen. You have to get it to a higher temperature and hold it at a higher temperature. It's a different mechanism. It's a totally different process to the point where you need a separate line to do that. Um, you also need to have a normal kiln because you're kiln drying the lumber before you thermally modify it. Taking green or even air dried lumber and sticking it into a thermal modification kiln is a recipe for inconsistency. You're trying to do too much all at once. So you have to kiln dry it first, then thermally modify it. A lot of thermal modification manufacturers buy kiln dried lumber. Some of the bigger ones are buying green, kiln drying it on their property somewhere and then moving it over to the thermal modification kilns. So again, very, very long answer here, but I wanted to kind of touch on this because it's important to understand what roasted, thermal modified, baked, all that stuff means. 
Also, not every species does this well. Poplar does thermal modify well. Oak, red oak thermally modifies. White oak, not a good thing. The tylos and the pores there cause problems and it's not going to thermally modify as well. Um, North American red oak, Quercus rober, um, that will thermal modify much better than European red oak. Uh, which is why a lot of these European thermal modification companies are using North American red oak and not European red oak. It doesn't modify the same. The wastage is higher on the European stuff than the North American stock. Ash thermally modifies great. And oh, by the way, could be a solution to the emerald ash borer. Maybe that's a topic for another conversation. Um, yeah. If anybody's interested in that, write in and let me know because I can go on about that particular topic later. Um, there are some exotics that do a good job. Some of the mahogany-ish ones, there's a species called Ayus that does this quite well, that's kind of mahogany-like. Iroko does this quite well, does thermally modify well. Um, maple has been thermally modified. It's often referred to as baked maple, but it does not thermally modify well. The reduction in, in um, uh, MOE is high enough that it becomes quite brittle. Uh, ask anybody who bought the first round of Veritas chisels how long their handles lasted. <laughs> ask the baseball players that used a thermally or a baked maple baseball bat and how it shattered. A uh, baked maple can be really good for small items, but if there are like significant dynamic forces like the whack of a mallet, um, it can shatter. So baked maple is a thing, but not a real good idea and you don't see a whole lot of it anymore. In general, the woods that have a lower density and lower amounts of sap and resin will thermally modify quite well. So radiata pine is thermally modified. Scott's pine, Pinus sylvestra, um, is, is thermally modified quite well. Southern yellow pine, hell no. Way too much resin in southern yellow pine. Eastern white pine, terrible example. A lot of resin and sap in that as well. You try to thermally modify eastern white pine or southern yellow pine, you get cell collapse, you get all kinds of issues there. Um, walnut, another example that does not thermally modify well, the extractives in walnut cause problems and can cause cell collapse there as well. What's interesting though is roasted or thermally modified poplar, it looks a lot like walnut. So while the technical properties have not changed, the physical or appearance properties will change. You are baking this. You're, you're kind of caramelizing. You're taking the creme brulee torch and you're making that lovely crunchy shell and that lovely, you know, caramelized coating over the top. So your ash, instead of being a white wood, now is kind of a caramelly color. Your oak is a deep, deep, dark brown color. Your poplar looks like walnut. And that in and of itself is a quite attractive reason to buy thermally modified wood. So that's my long spiel. Bit of a sales pitch hidden in there. <laughs> I try to keep, you know, the day job and, and our, our companies we do business with, <clears throat> Tan Temper, out of the conversation here just because uh, I want this to be as non-biased as possible. But, you know, a lot of my knowledge and a lot of my experience um, from working with thermally modified woods over the last year has come from my day job here. I have several pieces of thermally modified pine, Scott's pine, thermally modified ash, and thermally modified oak in my shop that I've been playing around with for several years. And it is cool stuff, guys. So if you run into situations where you're seeing roasted poplar, roasted ash, roasted oak, thermally modified, any of that stuff, it's worth a shot. And I think the hype is real. 
you, you know, we've taken wood, we haven't done anything to change it and turn it into something else. It's not a composite or engineered material. It's still wood, but it's wood that no longer moves. And to me, that's pretty exciting. It's actually a little upsetting when you think about all the time and effort we put into understanding how to build joinery that will expand and contract seasonally. And now somebody comes along and invents wood, creates wood that doesn't do that anymore. And you can throw all that stuff out the window. Kind of makes you mad, doesn't it? So on that note, I will say thank you guys. Some really good questions that came in this time. Uh, not a whole lot of theme going on here, but I think some interesting points. Love to hear some feedback on any of these points. Please send me an email, lumberupdate at gmail.com and let me know what you think. In the meantime, go buy some thermally modified wood.